Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. This week, I'll be continuing my discussion on relationships. Previously, I touched on three aspects of relationships, them being regret, happiness, and abusive relationships. This time around, I want to focus my attention on two things that factor into all three of those topics, trust and loyalty. To some, these might seem interchangeable. They are important components in any relationship, particularly founded on either familial or or romantic love, but I think a deeper exploration into these concepts is necessary to understand the underlying differences and the roles they play in ensuring happiness and comfort in our relationships, be them with you know, with family, friends, co-workers, or romantic partners. Furthermore, I think it powerful to consider that trust and loyalty act as the glue holding every single relationship we are a part of together. And it is only after realizing the power of relationships that one realizes how truly powerful trust and loyalty are in either helping us take control of our life or in losing control of our life. Relationships require a foundational trust in order to build off of, without which loyalty and love cannot grow from. I hope to explore these critical aspects of relationships with you today. Merriam-Webster defines trust as, quote, assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something, end quote. Additionally, Rutgers University anthropology professor Dr. Aldo Civico states that, quote, trust is essential to healthy relationships. Since it implies a certain degree of uncertainty, trust is the willingness to be vulnerable to the action of others. Trust is a choice. End quote. Which is something I couldn't agree with more. When you make the choice to trust someone, you are opening yourself up to be more susceptible to heartbreak and betrayal. You are opening yourself up for the possibility of feeling so many negative feelings because you believe in the character of that person so much that you choose to suspend your belief that they could ever or would ever do such a thing to harm you. But trusting someone isn't a choice that we make blindly. There's a lot that goes into whether or not we decide to trust someone. Neither is it true that there is a finite amount of trust you should give out as a human being. It's these toxic views on the subject that have taken over social media in recent years. Now with all this in mind, why is it then that people seem to be so quick to trust and in other words, so quick to make themselves open to having their heart broken or being betrayed? In an effort to paint ourselves as having tougher shells you know, over the internet, we inadvertently expose to everyone our most vulnerable points. Posting about your bad breakup with your boyfriend may seem like you're being strong and independent to your extremely biased immediate friends, who themselves trust you with their lives, but to everyone else, even those with very little understanding of your situation or knowledge of who you are as a person, it is that much more obvious and apparent how much this breakup affected you. This is nothing groundbreaking. You can log into one of your social media accounts and see people post about deeply personal things in their life as a way to assure themselves that they are better off without that person or that they are in the right in a certain falling off with a friend of theirs. In an effort to call out those they are unable to trust anymore, people inadvertently make the choice to trust complete strangers on the internet to the same extent as they do their closest friends. A sign of the negative effect that trusting that one person they shouldn't have had on them. It leads to people seeking validation from others, the very validation that they couldn't receive from that one person. Now, I say trust when referring to the relationship we have with our internet friends when oversharing, but I only mean to say that when we overshare, we are simulating the trust that we wish we had with others. 
The simulation of actual trust can occur for a variety of reasons. Some people might not have great self-regulation and have a harder time knowing when to stop talking about something. Others could be this way because of their attachment style. Attachment theory, which I have talked about before, attempts to answer how and why attachments are formed between two people, with John Bowlby positing that we use attachment as a means to survive and that we usually form a bond with one main attachment figure, such as our mother. Within this theory, there are four main attachment styles. These are anxious, disorganized, avoidant, and secure. And it's the anxious attachment style that I want to focus on today. It is those with this attachment style that tend to worry about the impression they make with others and hope that by sharing details and opening up that they come off as personable and are then deemed more likable. As she says in her Wall Street Journal article titled Thank You For Not Sharing, Elizabeth Bernstein talks about this occurrence and the lack of self-regulation that takes place during conversations as a result of anxious people using up too much mental energy in an effort to be witty and likable, so much so that they do not have any left over in order to filter what it is they are saying. can imagine people like this are very successful in forming a lot of relationships, or close relationships. Self-regulation is important in ensuring that you don't overshare, as the impression that people will have of you upon doing so is, ironically, that you are not to be trusted. You know, they think, if you're telling me this now, why should I trust you down the line with any of my secrets? Okay, then, so what is you know quote-unquote real trust then there are many different ways in which trust can be described and even more so that describe how to build it a lot of you know i a lot of which i agree with and a lot i don't agree with but i really like how dr francis frey professor at harvard business school described it during her ted talk on the matter trust if we're going to rebuild it we have to understand its component parts the component parts of trust are super well understood there's three things about trust. If you sense that I am being authentic, you are much more likely to trust me. If you sense that I have real rigor in my logic, you are far more likely to trust me. And if you believe that my empathy is directed towards you, you are far more likely to trust me. When all three of these things are working, we have great trust. But if any one of these three gets shaky, if any one of these three wobbles, trust is threatened. Authenticity, logic, and empathy as the three main components behind trust is something I can get behind. As someone who would probably describe themselves as being cautiously trusting, that is, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt while fully keeping in mind our human capabilities to be bad, coupled with the fact that I would also consider myself more of an introvert on the social spectrum, trust is not something that I choose to build with others very easily. Um, at least not deep trust. This goes with, you know, the idea of being cautiously trusting. I believe we would be a happier people if we tended to build a very general and not at all deep sense of trust with those we meet, especially those we casually talk to regularly. What does this mean? Well, to me, this would mean actively working on the three main components of trust. The trust is to seek happiness, but to do it responsibly is to find happiness. This means three things. One, that it is on us to be ourselves, to believe in the shared humanity between both parties in the conversation so much that you feel comfortable and secure enough to be yourself without giving up too much of who you are. Second, it's 
up to us to be mindful of our surroundings, to practice understanding one another in such a manner that we can begin to read the signs and understand when something is wrong with the person we are talking to. They're acting differently, showing different body language, tone, etc. Third, we need to be able to understand and notice human emotions, whether simple or complicated, and others as much as ourselves and wholeheartedly believe in the inherent value and preciousness of that person's life and experiences. That last one can be either the easiest of the three to accomplish or the hardest, depending on the person. There are some people that we are quick to dehumanize because they hold values and beliefs so abhorrent that we deem them evil. And to be evil is to lose your humanity. I'm guilty of doing this, and uh, it's something that I am learning to fight back within myself. I am not saying that we shouldn't feel disgusted by certain beliefs. I am absolutely disgusted by vile bigotry spewed by so many of our fellow humans. But if we are to truly make an attempt at ridding our world of this nastiness, little by little, then it does nothing to automatically lump those people into the evil pile and ignore them completely. If anything, that allows this evil to spread. What we must do is is trust in their humanity. Some people are genuinely a lost cause. No amount of conversing will get them to abandon such hateful views, but even those people, we have to make an effort to understand. Not to humanize them or to legitimize their beliefs, but to learn how it is that humanity may overcome this plague on an individual level at first, but then it, as it spreads on a family level and community level, until eventually it reverts back to being too scared to rear its face out in public. As an example, it is very easy for us as liberal-minded children of Mexican immigrants to shun our parents' more traditional bigoted views dealing with homophobia and sexism, for example. And I've seen it where people are proud that they don't talk to their parents anymore because of their deeply held views on human rights. Again, I know that some people just refuse to change no matter what, but what I am pushing here isn't to kill yourself trying to change other people. The effort we put in changing others should not be exhaustive and should never exceed the effort we put in bettering ourselves. But an effort should be made. Even if you couldn't change your parents' stance on gay rights, you have to be able to say that you did everything you could to help them see why you don't think their views are appropriate, how they weren't appropriate in the past and much less now. You shouldn't see this as a task you fail or succeed, but as a way to get closer to your own humanity. Even if you fail at changing the heart of a racist, for example, you succeeded because you came out unchanged and even more resilient in believing in your values. I feel like I'm rambling. I'll finish this up quickly. Basically, what I've been trying to say is that being truly empathetic is hard as fuck. I'm still working very hard on practicing what I preach, which is the exact point I am trying to make. Empathy equals effort. If you're not making an effort to empathize, then you're not empathizing. To practice empathy is to promote empathy, actively promote empathy. Now, for the other two components, authenticity comes easy if you truly believe in yourself, which is, again, why I think practicing empathy is so important. And forming logic around what you say and believe is made easier when, you guessed it, you believe in yourself. See, this is why I will always push for a more empathetic society. It just works to benefit us all, including ourselves, when we practice empathy. Practicing these three components will then make us more trustworthy in others' eyes, which in turn makes us more willing to trust others. Life works in cycles, and just as hate is perpetuated through vicious and violent cycles, so too can trust and love be promoted through the cyclical nature. The ultimate point I am trying to make is that time is the missing piece for the question of building trust. What I mean by this can be summarized from this section of a TED talk by Dan Ariely, professor of psychology and behavioral economics, wherein he goes over the well-known prisoner's dilemma and drives the point of how trust can be built with time. The first game I'll describe to you is a game I'm sure you all know called the prisoner's dilemma game. And just to repeat, here's the game. 
the police catches you and one of your best friends. They catch you, they suspect that you've, um, you've been a, a part of a criminal uh, activity, and they put you each in two separate rooms, and they start interrogating you. And basically, your question is, um, in, this, in this case, do you cooperate? In this case, it means you're silent. You cooperate with your friend, not with the police. Or do you defect? Do you rat on your friend and uh, give them up? Right? That's your dilemma. Stay loyal to your friend, give them up. And, and there's a payoff matrix, and we'll go at it. If, if both people are silent, right, then each of you will get one year in prison. You don't say anything, the other person don't say anything, the police has very weak evidence, you'll be a year in prison. But, but imagine you're the red person and you ask yourself, what, what will the other person do? You ask yourself, what would the blue person do? And you say, well, right now, if I remain silent and the blue person is silent, we each get one year. But the blue person could benefit if they decide to rat. And then I will get 20 years. So what should I do? I should rat as well. So basically, you have a dilemma. If you trust the other person, you would both remain silent and both of you would benefit. Justice, of course, will not benefit, but you, know, you two would benefit. But the problem is if you don't trust the other person, then you would both rat and everything would be worse for the two of you. Now, you sit there and you make a decision and you can't talk to your friend. Now, here is the particular game I want to describe to you. In this game, some people played in what is called the stranger condition. They played with one person, then another one, then another one, then another. Every game was a new game, as if you met a new person every time. And in the second condition, you played with one person 10 straight games. Now, if you play 10 straight games, you have a chance to do what? To build reputation. The other person sees you, they know you, they know how to react, and next time you have an opportunity to create reputation. What happens? Well, when you look at what happened in terms of what people choice, in the stranger condition, most people rat. What do you think happened in the game where people have a chance to create reputation? Most people cooperated. Most people trusted their friend. It's actually slightly more interesting than that because if you look what happened over time, it looks as if there are two periods. In the first period, the people in the partner game were much better than the stranger because they were still building reputation and there was an opportunity to enjoy the reputation. But if you look at the end of the game, at the end of the game, there's no more value for reputation. The game is ending and therefore people defected. So if you only look at the, the first part of the game where there was real value for reputation, people behaved much nicer. So, so what, is the, what is the lesson here? The lesson is that when we think long-term, when we have some value from long-term social interaction, we behave much better, right? Of course, you can think about something like eBay. What is eBay doing with its reputational system? It's taking people who are interacting with each other in the stranger condition and say, let's create reputation, a reputation system that will basically put all of those together as if there's some residue to your interaction between one person to another. Okay, so long-term relationship and reputation help to increase trust. I highly recommend this TED Talk. It's called Why Trust is So Important and How We Can Get More of It. He goes over a number of games to help make his points and it is highly educative and entertaining. 
Anyway, this is why I was hesitant to call oversharing a sign of trust. Trust only works when there is a reputation, a connection among people. Without the time de dedicated to building that connection, there is no opportunity to get to know someone's authentic self. To be introduced to new perspectives and practices and empathy, and to be challenged in the formation of rigorous logic. Again, it's important that we all actively work on the three components of trust that Frey laid out for us in our day-to-day -day and random interactions with strangers, but it is also important to dedicate the time and effort to work on all three of these components in our closest relationships because without it there is no trust when a relationship without trust is no relationship at all remember that example i brought up earlier of the person posting about a breakup on social media and that their closest friends whom i said trust the original poster with their life tend to side with their friend and see this post as a sign of emotional stability whereas other internet friends who don't have that level of mutual trust built into their relationship with that person might think them a little emotionally unstable and out to prove themselves. Isn't it ironic that, at least in this hypothetical scenario, that person's close friends are so blinded by what we call loyalty that it seems that your average stranger might have a more accurate read of the situation than those who have intimate relationships with at least one of those involved in said situation? Is this loyalty? Can loyalty then be so blinding? First, I want to quickly just note that researching for loyalty was harder than it needed to be. Through my research, I found countless articles, research papers, and TED Talks regarding customer loyalty for businesses. But loyalty in interpersonal relationships, as I am talking about here, was a much harder topic to research. And I don't appreciate this. <laughs> you see, I, I like to be intellectually challenged. When I talk about stuff, I would much rather have someone disagree or challenge me than agree with what I say. This helps me develop my thoughts and opinions regarding a given topic. If you aren't challenged in your beliefs, you cannot develop an understanding as to why you believe those things. And if you don't know why you believe what you believe, then you are giving up a bit of your humanity and allowing yourself to become more of uh, becoming more vulnerable to manipulation indoctrination and blind bigotry and we'll get to this but for now let's define loyalty in most definitions i've ever seen loyalty is seldom defined without the term faithfulness and i think this opens up an interesting conversation that starts with the question uh can you learn to trust someone again who has previously betrayed your trust and also can you be loyal to someone whom you don't trust these are really personal questions um that are necessary for us to ask ourselves in order to understand whether or not we can even begin to trust ourselves our thought process our morals when we combine the voluntary vulnerability that comes with trusting someone to the effort and faithfulness that comes from being loyal to someone, it's easy to see why mental health is becoming a more socially acceptable topic of discussion in the larger shared social consciousness. As the great Isaac Brock once said, it's hard to be a human being. And considering the idea that I brought up using that Jordan Peterson clip, that last relationship episode, that humans are social beings, maintaining healthy relationships to us is synonymous with living. Might be a little corny but I think that is the difference between existing and living. We all exist until we don't, but not all of us live, sometimes by choice, other times because of factors out of our control. And I think that this is where loyalty comes into play. We looked at one way to break down trust into three factors foundation, foundational to both its existence and development, authenticity, logic, and empathy. Additionally, trust and loyalty are themselves foundational aspects of our relationships. Previously, I tried to develop an understanding as to why and how relationships make us happy. With this episode, I wanted to look at what's at the core of our of our relationships. Just 
this last time we talked about synthetic happiness, I want to bring up a notion developing in my mind, uh, which is that of synthetic trust and synthetic loyalty, which I would define as trust and loyalty developed as a means to combat one's otherwise lack of trust and loyalty in life. In other words, the absence of these healthy relationships built on trust and built on loyalty lead people to develop an artificial artificial counterparts uh, of these relational concepts. There's two examples that I personally use to visualize this concept, and they are unconditional love and gang loyalty. I'd love to further, you know, research this uh, or to do further research on this and see how these ideas have any relevance and applicability to the real world. But anyway, from my perspective, unconditional love is not love at all. Love is a commitment one partakes in, in which they make personal sacrifices to help another person grow. And it's a mutual arrangement, obviously. This commitment to see that person become the best person they can be is built on the idea that we form relationships with others to become happy. It is rewarding enough to see personal growth from that person. And to feel yourself growing and becoming a better person because of your interactions, your relationships uh, with that person or people. Above all else, you enjoy making these sacrifices so much so that they don't feel like sacrifices at all. This isn't inherently a part of unconditional love. In fact, unconditional love says that even if there is not that, if there isn't that enjoyment of your company, that mutual commitment to one another, I'm still going to love you no matter what. This to me reeks of blind loyalty. Arguments have been made that a mother, for example, should and or does love their children unconditionally. That connection and relationship between a mother and a child is at the peak of our relational mountain. Yes, this may certainly be the case when mothers put in the time and effort to raise a healthy child and to help them develop into a decent human being and having that child reciprocate by then providing their own love and affection as a response to such primary affection, in turn reinforcing the idea that love is a mutual affair that works in the best interest of both parties involved but this isn't always the case some people are simply not good mothers they don't take the time to help their children grow into a physically and mentally healthy child so that reciprocation of affection is never there not that it is even wanted by these or these type of mothers in the first place this is wholly unhealthy and not at all what should be painted as the ideal type of love unconditional love instead is a social contract one signs with whomever they feel like they are socially obligated to enter it with be it their mother or sibling or friend but what happens when the conditions for unconditional love aren't met what if someone is so broken that they do not have the necessary tools to practice any form of love or to form a natural and healthy relationship with others well this is what leads to the formation of cliques and gangs i think we take one aspect of our life be it something we enjoy or we enjoy doing or are good at and expand it to take up a large portion of our personality so much so that it controls who we talk to and how we express ourselves to those outside our social group it's also like people why people form close relationships with this aspect of their personality and to quantify it by their interactions with others who do the same that's not to say that everyone in a fandom practices synthetic trust and loyalty because they are desperate to build authentic trust and loyalty but there are subsets of people whose unhealthy relationships or inability to form relationships have led them to join groups or transform themselves in order to better fit in with a group that seems to accept them gangs are an obvious example often we hear that the main reason why people join gangs is for the social aspects to feel accepted to feel like they're a part of something people find an immediate sense of trust and loyalty with their fellow gang members that rivals that trust and loyalty found in familial relationships in intensity people claim that they would die or kill for whom they would call their brothers blindly following the orders of their superiors in the name of some creed or adopted value system and the immediacy in which this newfound trust and loyalty is introduced in these people 
people's lives is truly amazing because when they say that they would die or kill for someone they mean it the youth is incredibly susceptible to this sort of indoctrination especially those of whom i've been highlighting all episode the loners and the weirdos and the abused and the bullied and those desperate for attention and love and affection so when they come across someone in their school promising them an opportunity to find everything that's been missing in their life everything they've been searching for in exchange of some sort of oath of commitment or simple initiation ritual why wouldn't they dive headfirst for it trust and loyalty are the key to healthy relationships and happiness and the extension the, the key of life or to life they are important to our well-being and when they aren't found in our lives we become desperate enough to find an immediate source of trust and loyalty in unconditional love and gang loyalty the relational equivalents of you know get rich quick schemes i know this episode consisted largely of personal philosophy and a sprinkling of theory so if you were expecting something else he i apologize Honestly, I originally planned on taking a different direction with this episode, but as I'm finding out more and more lately, these episodes kind of have a mind of their own and kind of just write themselves. So I hope you enjoyed listening to me ramble for however long this turns out to be. I'll be interested in revisiting this topic and especially conversing with someone about this on the show if and when possible. Because as social beings, I genuinely believe that relationships are at the core of the human experience. Relationships have shaped and continue to shape the course of history, politics, theology, and society in general. So partaking in that holy aspect of life is always a yes from me. In my humble opinion, our ability to communicate, to form relationships with one another and empathize with one another is what makes us interesting. Okay, so I'm going to end it here before I start rambling about some other personal philosophy. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have a blessed day. Stay safe and stay sane. Goodbye.